your face. Almost 
Church, there you are, and in your face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are Thea Era, Noah Reisman, and Robert Meldrum joins us. Well, Thea Era is a trans actor from Austria who stars in German thriller and romance Till the End of the Night, which is currently showing at the German Film Festival here in Melbourne. And Thea joined us from Vienna earlier this week, and she begins our interview by talking about the reaction to the film. Thank you so much. <laughs> I feel like it was it was it was pretty good. It was pretty I talked to a lot of, of people after the film, after the Berlinale, and everyone was was very uh positive about it and very very much also in the interviews and stuff, people are very interested in in how we can um rethink what um what uh, casting politics did the last the last years. But also not just just cast in one direction. Like I think you can. It's not always that strict, you know. Like if it comes to 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 other things like skin color and stuff, it's obviously obviously normal that you cast a POC person for it. Otherwise, it would be very racist. But when it comes to sexuality and and gender, I think we can be we can rethink it more 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 in an in a very open way you know how did you react when you first read the script i mean you must have been so excited for the role <laughs> I was, yeah um first of all it was a, it was the first um cinema casting i did so i was uh, very nervous and very excited for it um so i knew after reading the script that I have to play this character. I just, I just have to, I fell in love with it, with her. And, um, yeah, so I did everything I can <laughs> to, to catch this, this role. And yeah, it, it worked out, which is amazing. So how did you kind of lobby for the role? I mean, did you audition? Uh, tell us about the backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think it's because of of the Corona pandemic that um, people are getting more used to do doing e castings. Like you can you get the script, you get a casting sheet, and then um, you record yourself in your room <laughs> and try to 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 act out some scenes. Um, and I had to do two e castings, and after the second e casting, I got invited uh, to, uh, to Berlin. Um, meeting the director and uh meeting the casting director and then we we had we had some fun i would say because um i i i entered the room and we did not uh start directly with with acting we were just having a chat we were just sitting there talking about the scripts talking about the characters and so it was very nice because i felt i felt heard I, like the the things I said, the things I told the director about the script that um, were my my opinions about it, um, he really liked that, and he was literally very, very much listening to me. So um, it was a good ground to to start the audition. And the cinematography is great, and the camera loves you. Thank you. <laughs> 
I was really impressed by the dynamic on the screen that you had with your co-star who played Robert. Uh, forgive my pronunciation, Timerson Ziegler? Uh, Timothy Ziegler. Uh, <laughs> what a great role he played and what a great kind of, you know, chemistry. What was it like acting alongside him? It was the best, actually. It was, we had a great time after after the casting. We did a casting together um, because they wanted to see how this constellation would work. Um, so um, after that, we were already starting to talk to each other. We were sometimes FaceTiming, we, we were chatting and talking about the characters, talking about the script, talking about the relationship of those uh, characters, which is so important to think about how they, what, what, what is their, what is their um, past together? What is their past? But, but don't we see in the movie? But it's also very important for their, um, for their relationship and how the relationship with with power dynamics and everything is changing throughout the movie. So, um, I would say because of the fact that we both were very much interested in not trying to 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 lie <laughs> we just wanted to be very honest and 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 understand the the characters we're playing and also their relationship because it's it is a toxic relationship in a lot of ways but if you're being honest but acting it out if you really get into the character if you really get into the scenes if you if you are looking for some kind of feeling we always were looking for some kind of feeling we we wanted to see um their real relationship in every scene and uh, because of that i think it is a very honest movie what was the hardest part about playing your role um the hardest part I think I wanted to understand where Lainey, um is taking her power from, like where does it come from? Because I, because she's she's a very very strong person. I think she's the strongest person in the movie. Um, so for me, it was hard to 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 look out for for the the. The things that are under the surface, under the surface of 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 her character. So, and, and also because it was the first movie I ever did, I wanted to work with a coach. I wanted to work with an acting coach because I didn't even know how to to work out a script, and I wanted to do, to do it so perfectly <laughs> that um, nothing can go wrong while shooting. Because obviously, I was super nervous and excited uh, during the the shoot. Um, so it was the the work before I would say, but then I found out that if you're doing your your script work in a very good way, if you're working hard before, nothing can go wrong uh, during shooting. You can you understand your character so well that you you're very free when it comes to acting and when it comes to the the fun part of it. Wow, it sounds like a very empowering and a very positive experience. Tell us a little bit about your background as an actor before the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wanted to become an actor. I always did. So um, when I I grew up in Upper Austria in a in a small small city in a small town, 
um, on the countryside of Austria. And I think I, I talked to my mom about it and she said, yeah, you always wanted to become an actor. Like when you were three years old, you were surround our family to a family gathering in your room and then you were would act out some scenes from, I don't know, some movies you saw. Um, so I always were very fascinated with entertaining people because I think that's such a sensitive or such an interesting uh, um, thing to do. <laughs> um, that's an important thing also. And... Then I went to the high school, and in this high school we had uh, dance classes, and also some um, some shows. So I think we did two shows per year. Um, so I was ten years old, and I was on stage, and I loved it. I loved it so much that I that I knew that I belong here some, somehow. And then after graduating, I moved to Vienna and uh, tried to get in some acting schools, but they it didn't really work out for me. And then I was working in a restaurant in, in Indiana, and I met an actress that I knew from a show, and I started talking to her. And I think at the time she was 80 years old or something, and we were also talking about being a trans woman who wants to become an actress in Austria. And she was like, yeah, you know what, sometimes you need a hand from someone and I'm going to give you my hand now because you were reaching out your hand and I'm taking it. And then she talked to her agent, which is my agent still, uh, Makita Mudra, um, and I love the, the work with her. And she said, you know what, I'm just going to try it. You can uh, yeah, join our agency and then work out. <laughs> What a beautiful connection with that with that actor, and um, how wonderful to be nurtured by someone like that. Yeah, that was a magical moment, I would say. Three CR. You're listening to an interview with actor Thea Era on Radical Radio Three CR. What else are you working on, film wise? Right now. Yeah. Um, right now, I'm shooting a, a, a show in in Germany. Um, it's called Slüborn with the director Christian Albert. Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I, I love I love that the work a lot because it's another a very another genre. It's a, a very different genre than than the movie I, I did at the Berlinale um, for the Berlinale and. Otherwise, I'm I'm doing a show uh, at the Volkstheater at the the theater in in Vienna, and we uh, we are performing tonight. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm also a little excited right now being on stage later. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's it from from now. A show is coming out on a TV sender in Austria. It's called Sexplanation, and it's about different sexualities and um. The, the fact that how do we um, inform young people about their sexuality and stuff. It's a very cool show. Um, and it's going to premiere, uh, I think, tomorrow, <laughs> actually. Wow. Tell us a bit more about, about your role in the show. It's, it's, it's about, uh, uh, how do we say it in English? It's about uh, a shared flat of young people. 
and everyone is very different. One is gay. Um, other other as a, uh, other two people are in an open relationship, and I I join the the flat uh, the shared flat as a trans woman, and so it's more about how how we how we um, interact. Yeah, how we interact exactly. Thank you. <laughs> it, it's it's like reality TV. Yeah. No, not 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 really reality TV. It's 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 a show, um, a scripted show and everything. Um, but it's 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 a very cute thing, I would say. Thea, I have to ask, what can you tell us about the trans rights movement in in Austria at the moment? Uh, Is there a trans backlash happening in Austria like there is in in Australia and the US and the UK to varying degrees? Mm, That's a good question. Um, I think we're still, or people are still trying to to, um, make things better in Austria as well. I I wouldn't say that there is so much going on right now. Um I think people are very much trying to to or maybe some some trans activists. I have a few friends who are trans activists. Um they 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 do a lot, they do a lot of of course. But um yeah. I think they're they're trying their best, but we're still not where we where we should be in 2023. I mean, it's 2023, yeah. Thea, it has been a delight chatting with you. I loved your film Till the End of the Night. Uh, It's so exciting. You're on the stage in Vienna tonight. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Before you go, can you tell us a little bit about what you'll be doing on stage tonight? Um, It's a show that I've been working on with uh, three other people. Um. And I would say it's more of a, 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 a performance show. It's about um, it's about pornography, but we're not doing porn on stage. But it's more about um, rethinking pornography, mainstream pornography, and queer feminist um, pornography, and how it's um, how it's affecting us in our society right now. How we see gender roles how we how we deal with our sexuality um yeah and we're always sold out which is amazing so i think tonight is even the last time we're doing it this year so um it's our denere i would say in in germany you always say denere and uh, premiere and the other thing is the denere the last show of the of the season um yeah and i'm already very excited about it I bet. I mean, they are great themes to talk about queer feminism and sexuality and pornography. Yeah. What are some of the main messages that the show gives? Um, there are a lot of messages, obviously. And I think the biggest message is how we are dealing with our body in in a in, in this, yeah, more or less capitalist world. How we always want to... Um, improve our body how we always are like um comparing with each other's body and um also um over instagram or any anything that is doing with that that's dealing with social media 
and how we always yeah want to improve our body which is the, the main part and how that affects our our self-worth and our self-value yeah well it sounds like a vital production it sounds really exciting it sounds like you're loving all of the opportunities that are happening for you as an actor Thea thank you so much for chatting with me I really appreciate you taking time out on your busy schedule to chat with us here on 3CR Sure. Thank you so much. And sorry for my for my wobbly English. <laughs> I'm trying my best. Well, let me say your English is a lot better than my German. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And that was Thea Ira, who stars until the end of the night, and it's currently screening at the German Film Festival here in Melbourne. Yeah.
classic, the angels there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'm joined by Professor Noah Reisman uh, from the Australian Catholic University, but he's speaking in a personal capacity today. Noah, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, James. Happy to be here. You have had a win uh, regarding the pride flag uh, at Australian Catholic University. Tell us all about it. Sure. Yes, it, it has been a win, and we're very pleased with the outcome. So, I mean, I was on your show maybe a month ago, don't remember, but as a reminder, in late February, um, some of our lovely librarians put up a rainbow pride flag. They were ordered to take it down, and an edict went out to the librarian saying that rainbow flag stickers, etc., were not to go up because they were not appropriate at ACU. Um, so the ACU Ally Network, which I'm co-convener of, we very much tried talking behind the scenes about this, tried talking in front of the scenes, but there was very much an upswell of support for us. So students, staff, parents, alumni, all sorts of people were writing in to various parts of the university, asking them to lift this ban. Our pressure did not go away. We had a day in the late March, I believe it was, we called Rainbow Up Day, where we encouraged everyone to wear their rainbows with pride. And yeah, um, a week ago, word went around that the ban is lifted on public displays of rainbow imagery, which we're really, really pleased to see has happened. So what happened in in that month? We spoke on March 24, and it sounds like it was the end of April that the decision was was lifted, or early May. Um, Tell us a bit more about those behind-the-scenes machinations that led to the decision being reversed. I think there were a few turning points. I think the first turning point was the article in the Sydney Morning Herald, which obviously caught your attention and, you know, brought about our first interview. And um, we were really glad to have that coverage because it it made it public what was going on at ACU and also kind of exposed this bizarre case that the university was putting up at the time that, oh, no, this is our flags policy. We're not discriminating. Then we had that rainbow update where we had a fantastic turnout on multiple campuses of the university. In Blacktown, which is the campus where all of this began, it coincided with the formal opening slash blessing of the library. And, you know, we had some LGBTIQ plus students attend that, you know, very peacefully, non-issue. And I'm told that the Bishop of Parramatta, who was there, went up to them and said some very kind, welcoming words to them. And I think that was really important as well. And I think the other important turning point was, um, thanks to a lot of our support at the university, the university sort of safety committee, it it got on their agenda, and they took it really seriously. They understood that this was a safety issue for students who are LGBTIQA+, who didn't feel safe at the university now that they were being told that their symbols weren't appropriate we, I, and the co-convener were invited to attend that meeting. We were able to present case of everything that had happened. We had permission from students to share some excerpts from some emails they had that talked about, like, the serious hardship this was causing them and the mental health impact. I think all of this got fed through to the vice chancellor, got fed through to the leadership can, um, of the university. I think that had an impact. I think the other thing that had an impact Tara, I say it is, we weren't going away. I think the university thought we were going to go away, and we weren't. Um, And so all of this pressure combined, eventually, you know, the right people in charge made the right decisions, and we're really glad that they did. Um, They saw this was a safety issue. They saw this was about student and staff well-being, and 
you know, I give them credit. They they back down and they even in an email to staff and in some subsequent meetings use the word apology. And I've got to tell you, that kind of caught me off guard because I didn't know that was in the vocabulary of the leadership of the university. But I give credit where it's due. Like, that was really, really big of them, and we're really glad that they've done that. I mean, it's a key decision. It sets, it sends an enormous message to religious schools. It can change a policy position on LGBTIQ issues. Uh, it has a tremendously positive impact, and the sky doesn't fall in. All of the above. And, and I think the big thing is it's about listening. They listened. It took a little while for them to listen, but eventually they listened. And I think what, what really drove change was also the personal stories that students and others were, were sharing with the leaders, and it was really hard for them to ignore that. And, you know, I, at the end of the day, look, I think it, um, it wasn't just one person's decision at the top. I think it was, it, and look, I wasn't in the discussion, so this is my reading of it, but I think it was a bit of a consensus decision where multiple leaders at the top of the university felt that they had enough support that they could change their minds or, or force a change of the, the decision at the top. And yeah, like I said, we got the outcome we wanted. And to the university's credit, they're suddenly reaching out to the Ally Network and like they're very much supporting the Idaho events we're running next week. And I'm hopeful that we can have more great stuff going forward now that the university has sort of come to the table on this. I mean, it really does help campaigns around, you know, other religious organisations and schools when, you know, their queer communities are saying, look, we need this policy shift. Look what ACU did. Why can't you do it? And look at all the positive impacts it had. I mean, I I don't think we can underestimate the significance of this because it's the first time something like this has really happened, hasn't it? With With a main kind of, you know, religious school, if you like, actually having such a huge policy shift. Uh, that's that's Look, so well received. You mentioned that's the first time I've really thought of it that way. Um, yeah, I hope it does have that ripple effect. I think one of the things that was really clear was that the majority of students and staff supported us. There was clearly a disconnect between the person who made that original decision and the people who then backed that person. But the groundswell on the of staff and student opinion, there was a huge disconnect and eventually... They accepted that. And, and again, I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying to be nice here because, like, they've done the right thing. Like, they have. And it's, I've worked at ACU for 15 years. I don't think I've ever seen them back down and change positions on anything. This is really big. And I'm really grateful that they've done it. Um, so, yeah, it, it does send a message if others are, are watching or listening that, you know, you, there's, you can change your views. You can change a position. You can listen. And as you say, the sky ain't going to fall in. And it really sends a message to the broader Catholic Church about, look what happens when you're inclusive. I hope so. I mean, ACU is a funny institution because we're both a Catholic institution and a public one, which has always put us in this sort of funny middle-of-the-road place. Um, Yeah, and I mean, like, we're not governed by the Catholic education offices, for instance, that govern primary and secondary schools, so... We've always been, yeah, we've always been in a bit sort of like funny position there, which the university has always had to tread this fine line balance of being both public and Catholic. And I think that may have given ACU a little more leeway in this than perhaps some other institutions would have. That said, it can pose lessons to those other institutions, and and I hope that they can take them. It's been almost two weeks since the decision was made. You must be able to observe a shift in morale among staff and students, queer staff and students in particular. Oh, my God, yes. 
Absolutely. I mean, we've gotten a lot of really gracious messages of thanks, people saying that they're so pleased with this outcome. I've also people who attended meetings where some of the senior leadership have actually, again, used that word sorry and admitted that they made a mistake. And they said it was really heartfelt coming from the senior leaders saying that. And I think that sent a really important message as well. Um, and we've got Ida Hobbit events planned for this coming week. We've done Ida Hobbit events before. Usually it's just been amongst ally network people, and we've usually had maybe 20 people or so, 20 or 30 on the campuses where we've run it. We've had a lot more RSVPs this time. Um, so I feel like in many ways it's galvanized um, a lot of our supporters and the shackles are lifted. And I'm looking forward to Idaho this coming week. I've got a friend who runs a cafe and catering business who's doing our rainbow cupcakes. I'm very looking forward to what she makes. It'll be interesting to see how this decision impacts on queer enrolment to the ACU. Will there be an increase, I wonder? I mean, who knows? Who knows? Because, I mean, on the one hand, we could say, look, they've done the right thing, and look, look, and now they're supporting us, and, you know, that's a great thing, but others will probably remember what happened. So I, I couldn't say. I do know that the LGBTIQ plus student groups who were, I should say, they were very involved in this campaign as well. Um, they, I think, are as relieved as I am, but with them, I think it hit them a little more personally. I mean, I've been at ACU for 15 years, so I knew this, that this decision didn't represent our university. Like, I knew it. I was like... This is not what our people are like. But for a student who comes in and they're only there for three or four years and they might be in first or second year, they, you know, that was the message they got. It might take longer for that to wear off, but that's, that's something, I guess, that you know, ongoing discussions with the student groups is the, the way we can work through that. Noah, you are a prolific researcher and writer about trans history in Australia. Uh, what's happening with your books? <laughs> September 26th. Fantastic. Now, what can we expect in the book? Oof, okay. Well, the book is focusing on trans history in Australia from 1910 till the present. 1910 is not an arbitrary marker. Um, that's the year that Magnus Hirschfeld in Germany first coined the term, and it is an outdated term, so I'm using it historically, but coined the term transvestite, and that's when you begin to see a language of trans. So the book uses that as a starting point. It's not to deny the existence of trans or gender diversity before 1910. It's just every book needs a starting point. That's this one. So, um, you know, it's divided over eight chapters. Um, there's a chapter looking at the gender crossing in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s. There's a chapter then that looks at sort of the rise of what we might say um, camp cultures and the beginning of sort of more distinct trans cultures in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. There's then a chapter that looks at the beginnings of trans organizations and activism um, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, there's a chapter looking at the push for law reform, meaning both anti-discrimination protections as well as um, legal recognition of people's affirmed genders, starting from the 70s through the 90s. Uh, the next chapter looks especially at queer and trans, black, indigenous, and people of color and their distinct experiences. Uh, the next chapter looks at what we might call firsts. Um, so firsts or perceived firsts of, of sort of trans achievements across all walks of Australian social and cultural life. There's a chapter that looks at activism from the, the 90s and 2000s, and the final chapter tries to look at, I guess, the more present context, the sort of starting in 2013 with the amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act and then taking it through to the present day, which I think I have said at the beginning of that chapter, you could write a whole book on those last 10 years alone. Um, so it's, it's 
tries to focus on a few big picture themes. What a rich history. Now, was there any gem in particular that you unearthed and you went, wow, that's a discovery? Oh, God, everything was a wow. Everything was a wow. But was there one, though, where you went, oh, my God, you know, that is, I'm I'm really surprised by that. Uh, Okay, yeah, maybe. I don't know why I'm thinking of this now, but um, there's Lady Paula Howard, who was a trans woman who had grown up in the UK and then South Africa after the Second World War. And then she moved to Australia in the early 70s, settled in Melbourne. And she was involved in Seahorse very early um, in Seahorse's years. She was a bit of a polarizing figure. Right? She was a very big personality that drove some people uh, the wrong way. But what I loved when I read about Lady Paula Howard was that she, she was a bit of a fashionista, let's say. And according to her autobiography, which you sometimes have to take with a grain of salt, but she apparently appeared on television briefly in the background when Princess Prince Charles and Princess Diana visited Australia in the early 80s. And there was apparently someone saw an image of her curtsying to them when they visited the Melbourne Recital Center. But the other story about her is that she won some special awards at Fashions on the Field um, at Oaks Day in the races in the late 70s. Um, I don't know why I thought of that example right now, but there's just a little bit about Lady Paula Howard um, in the book. Big, big seahorse icon who, you know, was was very well a society lady, let's say, a society lady. It sounds like an enormously fun book to write. Well, at times it was fun. Other times, you know, there's also a lot of hardship and trauma that the book goes through. But, but big picture, absolutely, and mainly because I've met some awesome people. Like, it's very much... I'm a cis white man who's written this book, and so it's very much meant to be centering trans voices, centering trans perspectives, and um, so a lot of it is driven by the oral histories, and I did oral histories with 105 people, and they were A, really, really generous, but B, just some awesome people to, to meet who who were who have shared all this, and yeah, this is bringing it all together, I suppose you could say. Noel Reisman, it is always a joy to hear your voice on 3CR. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Can't wait to read the book. (laughs) Thanks, James. Noel Reisman there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR.
Killers. There you are, and in your face on 3CR with James. I am joined by acclaimed actor Robert Meldrum, who stars in the Victorian Theatre Company's uh, production of Samuel Beckett's Worst Ward Ho. And uh, Robert, it's an honour to have you on the show. Hi, James. Good to be here. <clears throat> I love the title. Uh, what was Samuel Beckett thinking with that one? Uh, oh, well, it's a very long story, so I'll try and make it as short as possible. It's a pun. Uh, there was a novel written in the 19th century called Westward Ho. And Westward Ho, you know the, 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 the sort of ho, it's what stage people who drove stagecoaches would get up and say to the horses, ho, to get the horses going. So it's a kind of exhortation to the person speaking to, to get going, to start moving. So it's a pun. Beckett loved puns. So it won't mean anything. It's a title. But it does, um, in, as you experience the show, you'll understand more what that is. It's got a great quote about failure. Tell us about that. Yes. Beckett, um, Beckett had a kind of epiphany at about the age of 43. Um, and he describes it this way, and it's worth just speaking. It's very short, but he says um, he'd just written um, his first novel. And he said it this way. He said, up to that point, I thought I could rely on knowledge, that I had to equip myself intellectually. That day, it all collapsed. I wrote Malloy, and the rest of the day, I understood my stupidity. Then I began to write down what I feel. And so the, 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 the notion of that is that um, he, he saw success as something that actually prevented you from going deeper into exploration because, you know, in order to go into the unknown, as actors have to do when we do anything, you have to be prepared to fail. So failure actually becomes something that you embrace and, and desire. And so the great the quote that comes from this is very early in the piece where essentially it's like a person in a space like the way we do sometimes when, we, you know, when we're, you're on your own and you, you, you talk to yourself, you know, oh, God, why did I do that? You know, we have these dialogues with ourselves. In a sense, that's what you're watching. And it's a person at the very beginning, rather like Hamlet's soliloquy starts to be or not to be. That is the question. This starts on, say on, be said on, somehow on, till know how on, said know how on. Wow. Get going, do something, keep going until you can no longer do anything. And so he says that, and he's obviously made several attempts at this, as we all do make attempts at doing difficult things. And very early he says, this comes out, all of old, nothing else ever, ever tried, ever failed. No matter, try again, fail again, fail better. I love that, fail better. So many great fail lessons. Better. Yeah. For the so, modern era where, you know, we I know. often feel so inadequate. Yes, and, and, and I think that we're so, in this society, particularly now, where young people, there's such a, a focus on you know, needing to succeed, needing to get on, all that thing. And, and I think people become frightened of making mistakes. And in our profession, it's essential. We only find out by error, if you see what I mean. I mean, that quote really kind of has, I mean, you've been a very successful actor, but it must kind of in some ways be a, dra- a great kind of, you know, reflection on your career because you've been 
in the theatre industry here in, in Melbourne for over five decades, there must have been times when you thought, well, you know, if I'm going to fail next time, I'm going to fail better. Because um, you've kept going. Oh, James, I think it's, the, it's actually the, the, the experience of any actor, you know, um, and, and my career has had so many ups and downs, in fact. But, but yes, I mean, t- to be honest, I think this is, I know, this is the first time in my life, I think, that I have felt so absolutely confidently inside something. Isn't Why that is extraordinary? that? Why is that? I think it's all those years of experience where finally I can kind of come at it in a way that I'm not no longer so burdened by thoughts of you know where how it will be received, what people will think of it. But essentially, it's to do with the writing and my director Richard Murphy, uh, who creates the most extraordinary atmosphere of trust and um, you know uh, a place of permission where I'm able to do anything. I don't have to be. There's no part of me that becomes self-conscious. That's also a skill that one learns over many years. But it's also the text itself because it's a little bit... I've always been a great lover of Shakespeare. And the thing about Beckett is that... By the way, this is not a play. This is a, this is a novella, one of the last... What you, know, you might call a novella. One of the last things he wrote. I mean, you know, Happy Days that's on at the moment at MCC. That was written in 1961. He wrote this in 1983. By six years later, he's dead. So it's one of the last pieces he writes. And all through his life, he was he was wanting to to reduce language to its most pure state. To, to what, what what can I get rid of? So this is very reduced. If you sit in the theatre trying to understand what I'm saying, you probably won't won't get anything. If you sit and listen to it, because in its essence, the words he uses words like Shakespeare did. They, they, for their, 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 the sound of them, their musicality. And so Beckett's writing doesn't come alive until you actually speak it. And it's a fabulous um, joy to do that, and it's what gives me great confidence. Can I just, just read? Uh, this, this will give a, a kind of a touchstone for people in terms of a... His father bought a car when, he was, when Beckett was in his 20s, not for him, for himself, but Beckett got to drive it. Now, he never drove a car car consequently because he preferred public transport and just his biographer describes it this way he was at trinity college in dublin beckett drove it around trinity very badly but with enormous style he shifted gears with sweeping dramatic arm movements and involved his entire torso in negotiating terms he made blowing the horn a musical art and parking was an exercise in dance and mathematics. <laughs> now, those three things describe the experience of doing Beckett. Wow. A, you have to be physically connected with it because it moves through your whole body. You have to allow the sounds and the words to have their full value as you speak them. That's that musical art. And the mathematics is the extraordinary way in which he places the words on the page in terms of of what word and what words in which order. Just like that, that famous quote, it's an extraordinary piece. Fail again, fail better, you know. Four words, but look at the amount of interest that it's created in people. And that's the wonderful, that's been the, the great joy in doing this. So all that's culminated you know, late in my life, and it's like the greatest gift I could have had, really. And Richard has just been a superb director. We've worked on this for nearly three years now. It must feel great performing it. 
It does. It, it's, it's fantastic. But, but it is like I'm on a tightrope. It has to be like that. But I'm literally on a tightrope, meaning I have to be so totally present with it, with every word. I can't, I can't for a second think ahead or think back. Now, essentially, that is what all actors have to do. But this piece demands that because there's no narrative, there's no character, <laughs> there's no dialogue. It's just this man's thoughts. And as we know, our thoughts don't proceed logically. They jump all over the place, don't they, like dreams. And so when you said earlier it's very contemporary, I think to that degree um, Beckett is probably the most contemporary of 20th century um, writers, or certainly for play, play writers, um, because, uh, because of that, because of that kind of almost postmodern, if you like to use that term, you know, experience of the language. Now, I don't want all that to sound, which is why I quoted that, you know, it could be very daunting to someone. It, it, it happens. People say, oh, Beckett. Oh, no, Beckett. Um, I, I can almost assure you won't have that experience when you come to see this. Because I think, A, it's very unusual anyway to see one person in a space just there thinking, but thinking aloud, as it were, but, but, but without knowing where they're going. You know what I mean? Not me, the actor, but the person speaking doesn't know where they're going because they're trying to work this thing through. The other analogy would be like a, 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 a monologue from Shakespeare, which states its terms at the beginning, to be or not to be, that is the question, and then he argues it through. It's like that takes four minutes, this play takes 60 minutes. So you could see it that way. It's like a, a Shakespeare monologue over 60 minutes, as this person thinks their way through to the end, until he finally can say said, know-how on, finished. Yeah. It sounds exhilarating, but it also sounds incredibly demanding. And is it draining? Like, how does it impact on you when you're not rehearsing it, when you're not <laughs> thinking about it? Is it hard to cut off from it? Um, yeah. Well, I'm actually speaking the lines in my sleep, so that's, that's kind of really? it. It's never happened before. Really? I have a sleep app that records my talking. Really? I'm actually having, my psyche is having, con not, not necessarily the text in the play, my psyche is going to have conversations with itself in my sleep. I hear voices I don't recognize. Who is that? It's me, of course. But like, it's really got my psyche activated, and that's oh a good God. thing, I think. It is, Just but in terms do you feel like you're kind of teetering on the edge of perhaps like almost a psychosis sometimes no, with all that? No, no, I've been through all that, done all that many years ago. No, I feel very sane, very grounded. And so to answer that question directly... Like we did a run today, and I finish it, and actually, you know, there's no character, but it, it is not my voice. They're not my words. And so I feel like I've been someone else, and it finishes, and it's like, oh, thank God that's over. Now let's go out and party or have a drink, you know. Um, so in a way, no, it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of exhilarating, actually. It's why I, I say to young actors who I train, it's why I act for that, you know. Um, for that terrifying, exhilarating thing. Yeah, you know, it must feel uh, amazing when you're when you're on the stage performing it. Uh, yeah, it really would. Well, I don't know yet, James. We haven't got this on stage yet. Not till, not for two weeks, but hopefully, yeah. But even when you're working with 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 Richard, um, surely when 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 you're standing in front of him and. And reading it. Uh... Oh no, no, no! It, it's already. I'm off book. I've been off book for ages, and and, and you know, to, to answer quite directly that question, yes, we did a run today. I'm in. I'm inside it there, and I'm experiencing that already. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, the run we did today. I said, I haven't. God, if only I had this experience with every play I've done. You know, but that's not the way it works. 
it, it's I do think it's something that finally I'm able to do because of the years of experience and and yeah and I don't any longer oddly enough I have less worry about like you know lines and overhead but that's a whole other story about how I work on that but yeah sounds like you've got a great camaraderie with the director Richard Murphy wonderful we've actually known each other for many years and we've done two plays together over the last few years first time he directed me and um yes richard was a uh, was the um uh a, a lecturer in postgraduate directing and um writing at the vca the drama school for many years and so he's been a great mentor to many students but um he's a he's, an, he's a wonderful director he writes his own work but he's an extraordinary director but he chose to you know put his life's work into teaching um, but I've worked with some great directors and had, had enormous, um, you know, pleasure doing so. But this really is the best experience. Um, as I said, um, there's no judgment. There's incredible focus. There's incredible. He was describing today what that is for him, what that focus is, um, how he's, a, he's listening every moment for something that sounds inauthentic or doesn't hit the notes, you know. And then he very gently... He won't say you didn't. It would be like finding a way to, to um, talk about that with me that allows me to go straight back in and work on it again. We don't talk about it. I go in. He 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 speaks to me. I say, okay, let me go in and do that again. And the adjustment is made, and that's become like well-oiled machinery between us. Yeah, and it's, that's a, that's a, a very rare thing. It sounds like you're going to really miss this production when it's when it's yes. over. Do you go through grief after a show? Do you go through grief when it ends after after it being such a huge part we of your keep life? Saying that we keep saying, what are we going to do? Uh, that you're spot on, absolutely. And what well, are you going to do? Well, <laughs> I was thinking I've never taken a trip. You know, it's winter. I thought maybe I could just spend some money and go away to Fiji for three days. But I won't do that. Um, no, hopefully we we you know depending on how it's received, we would hope to keep doing it. You know, um, tour it or whatever. We'll see. But yes, it will be. Um, it will be very hard to let go of. Yeah. Well, Worst Ward Ho is on at the Explosives Factory at Theatre Works, 67 Incoming Street, St Kilda, May 24 to June 3. Robert Meldrum, it's been a joy chatting with you and I uh, can't wait to see it. Wonderful. Mm. Thank you so much and uh, best of luck. Okay, thanks very much. Bye. He really is a, a treasure of Melbourne theatre, Robert Meldrum there. 
was the king of the kids And threw his trophies to the sky As he jumped from the bridge, yeah In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs>